Hi everyone. Well, we're going to cover this week's Torah portion, Lech Lecha, but if you came to the class in person, you may think, Dr. Chad wasn't wearing a white short sleeve hoodie when I came to class, and you would be correct because we had a technological snafu in the recording of this week's Son in the Scriptures during the actual live class. But I want those who tune in regularly, whether it's through our podcast or through our YouTube channel or on our website, uh, that keep up with it that way, to still have access to the material. And so uh, not on a Monday night, but now on a Tuesday afternoon, I am going to in many ways present the, the crux of what the portion is about and look through my notes. Uh, you'll be missing some of the ad lib that comes from being in the live room and kind of interacting and feeding off the energy of the people present, but it will still allow you to keep up with the Torah portions as well as especially I think that will be very impactful for you is uh, toward the end when we look at uh, making it personal and that personal application of this week's portion to our daily lives. And so with that, let's get started with the blessing before the study of Torah, and then we'll dive into the material. Let's pray. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech ho'elam, asher kidishanu b'misvita v'sivanu le'esok b'divrei Torah. Blessed are you, Lord God, King of the universe who has sanctified us with his commandments and has commanded us to be immersed into the words and the matters of Torah. Amen. So this week in Son and the Scriptures, we're coming to the third portion of the Torah's 54 portions. That third portion is known as Lake Lecha. It covers Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, and goes through chapter 17, verse 27. It's interesting if you look at the two Hebrew words, lech lecha, uh, they're on the handout for you. If you look at those two words, they look identical. Even if you can't read Hebrew, you can just visually tell those two words look identical. Yet, in Hebrew, they are two very different words with two very different meanings. That first one, lech, means to go or to travel or to walk. It comes from the Hebrew verb halach. And then the second one is not lake, but lecha. And it's really the preposition lamed followed by the pronominal suffix kuf, kaf, uh, that means you. And so lech lecha means go to yourself, go to you. And I want you to keep that in mind, especially as we will uh, come to the end of our portion this evening, uh, how we can derive some practical application and what it means that God commanded Abram to go to himself. But first, let's figure out what's going on in the portion. What's the Goodyear blimp summary of what's happening in the third portion of the Torah, beginning in Genesis chapter 12. Well, God speaks to Abram, commanding him to lech lecha, to go from your land and go from your birthplace, from your father's house to the land that I will show you. And there God says, Abram will be made into a great nation. Abram and his wife Sarai, accompanied by his nephew Lot, journey to the land of Canaan, 
The land of Canaan is modern-day Israel. The land of Canaan is the promised land, and the promised land is Israel. And there, when Abram and Sarai and Lot make it into the land of Canaan, Abram builds an altar. But then there is a famine that forces the first one in the entire Bible to be called a Hebrew to depart the land of Canaan and to go into Egypt. I want you to also kind of keep that in mind for later when we get to making it personal. And that is that Abram is the first person in the Bible and the first person in known history to ever be called a Hebrew. Hebrew is not really a word that describes a nationality or a genetic code or a a DNA sequence or anything like that. Hebrew actually means something quite different, and it's tied into Lake Lecha. So keep that in mind. We're going to further define what a Hebrew is and why Abram was called a Hebrew. But he departs for Egypt because of famine, and there his beautiful wife Sarai is taken into Pharaoh's palace because Pharaoh fancies her. Abram escapes death because they present themselves as not husband and wife, but brother and sister. But a plague prevents the Egyptian king from touching her and convinces him to return her to Abram and to compensate the brother now revealed as husband with gold, silver, and cattle. And so now Abram is able to go back into the land of Canaan as the famine has receded, and he goes back wealthier than he was when he left because the Pharaoh has gifted him with all of this gold, silver, and cattle. Lot then separates from Abram and settles in the city of Sodom. Uh, It's important to know this as well about Sodom. Sodom is roughly in modern-day Israel toward the southern, on the southern end, south of the Dead Sea. Now, if you were to get Google Maps and look at that area today, it would look barren, it would look dry, it would look dead. But in Lot's day, it was quite the opposite. That area in the land of Zoar was plush and it was fertile. It was a a vibrant place to be and to live. That's why Lot wants to go there. It only becomes that barren wasteland after sulfur and ashes kind of rain down on it. And there's an interesting prophecy in Ezekiel about the days of Messiah, that one of the ways you'll know the days of Messiah have arrived is that the sea that we call dead now will once again come to life and fish will once again live in it and that area that's now the wasteland will become vibrant again. And it's also uh, kind of interesting to note that they are now discovering uh, freshwater streams popping into the Dead Sea deep within it and fish and other small microbial life are beginning to live in the Dead Sea again, which for us with eyes of Ezekiel and eyes of the book of Revelation, see that as a foreshadowing that Messiah is indeed not far off. But that's where Lot goes, and he finds himself to be taken captive when the mighty armies of the kings of Elam and the three allies conquer the five cities of the Sodom Valley. Abram gets wind of this, and he sets out with a small band to rescue his nephew. He defeats the four kings, and then he's blessed by an individual known as Melchizedek. Uh, Melchizedek. 
Machizedek or Melchizedek in Hebrew comes from two words, Melech and Zedek, which means king of righteousness. And Melchizedek is none other than the king of a place called Salem. And that is the Salem of Jerusalem. And so this is the first mentioning of Jerusalem in your Bible. God then seals the covenant between the parts with Abram in which the exile of the people of Israel is foretold and the Holy Land is bequeathed to them as their eternal heritage. Still childless, ten years after their arrival in the land of Canaan, Sarai tells Abram to marry her maidservant Hagar. Hagar then conceives, becomes somewhat insolent toward her mistress Sarai, and then flees when Sarai treats her harshly. An angel convinces her to return and tells her that her son will father a populous nation. And Ishmael is born in Abram's 86th year. Thirteen years later, God changes Abram's name to Abraham, which means the father of multitudes, and changes Sarai's name to Sarah, which means princess. And he promised this couple that a son will be born to them, and that from this child, whom they would call Isaac, or Itzik, meaning laughter, will stem the great nation which God will establish a special bond. And Abraham is commanded to circumcise himself and his descendants as, quote, a sign of the covenant between me and you, between the Lord and uh, Abraham. And Abraham immediately complies, circumcises himself and all the males in his household. So that's the summary. That's the nuts and bolts of what's happening uh, in this week's portion of Lech Lecha in Genesis beginning in chapter 12. Now, in our series, The Sun and the Scriptures, as the title would kind of indicate, uh, the approach we want to look at the text each week with is, where does the sun fit into this scripture? That is, where can we see our Messiah? Where can we see Jesus foreshadowed in the text? Where can we see things kind of predicting or describing or helping us further understand aspects of our Messiah in the text? And so, of all the different ways you can approach uh, the text, and hopefully you can check out archives of previous years when we've looked at the Torah portions, uh, each year I try to take different verses or different sections, but do so from a unique perspective. This year in Son in the Scriptures, we want to see what's the connection to Messiah, kind of that road to Emmaus experience where Jesus opens the eyes of these two disciples by opening the Scriptures to them and showing them in the Scriptures, in the writings of Moses, that everything was really written about the Messiah. And so I want to do that this week with Abraham. I want to see the connection to Abraham and Messiah. And there's a couple of places to do that. One is in uh, the Gospel of John. Uh, so uh, in the Gospel of John, uh, there is one passage that Jesus is engaging with people who are kind of countering him. And Jesus makes the statement that Abraham saw my day and rejoiced. And we may not quite fully understand what Jesus was saying there, but he was actually quoting 
uh, um, the Jewish legends of the day, what we would call now the Midrash or the Agidah, uh, the tellings, the stories, uh, the Paul Harvey of the scripture, the rest of the stories. Because in those collections, in those Midrashim, in those Jewish legends, one of them about Abraham is that when God makes the covenant with Abraham and he tells Abraham, your descendants are going to be as numerous as the sand on the seashore, as numerous as the stars are in the sky, uh, that Abraham, the story goes, is caught up kind of in a rapturous vision the way John is in the book of Revelation. And in this rapturous vision, he actually gets to see all of those descendants. He gets to see all of those who will come from his line. And he specifically sees the Messiah. He sees that the Messiah is actually going to stem from him. And the story says that when he sees the Messiah, he rejoices greatly. So in the Gospel of John, when Jesus says, Abraham saw my day and rejoiced greatly, he is actually, Jesus is quoting this story. Uh, and so what do you do when a divinely inspired scripture quotes a story? Well, that obviously means that at least that portion of the story is also true. Uh, and so I want to go to this portion, these stories of Abraham, and also make the, help us make the connection to Jesus and the Sitzim Laban of the gospel writers and how the gospel writers chose to write what they did because of what they knew about Abraham and Abraham's connection to the Messiah. So another place in John, we read this. This is coming in John chapter 8, uh, beginning in verse 57. It says, Those of Judea said to him, said to Jesus, You are not yet 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Before Abraham was born, Egypt and Mesopotamia birthed great civilizations. Seven dynasties of Egypt's old kingdom had already come and gone before Abraham. The great kingdoms of Sumer had already vanished. By Abraham's day, storytellers already considered the epic of Gilgamesh to be ancient folklore. Before Abraham, human history was already piled deep. Among the thousands of long-forgotten men and women born, raised, and buried in cities like Ur of the Chaldees, there was one man that stood out. Somehow, some inborn conviction, one man found faith and the one true God of creation. How did it happen? In Abraham's day, the entire world was given over to idolatry, to polytheism, to paganism. And yet somehow Abraham recognized his creator. Reminds me of a, another one of those stories of Abraham. That's one of my favorite. It talks about Abraham's father, Terah. Uh, that Terah was an idol maker. That was his profession. He made idols and sold them. And Abraham, one evening as uh, he was kind of thinking things through, uh, destroyed all the idols in the workshop except for one. And he left that one standing. And then when his father came in the next morning, was like, someone's broken in, someone's vandalized our property. Uh, Abraham said, no, 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 this one God didn't like all these other gods, so he destroyed them. And he wanted to be known as the strong God. 
And Abraham's father, Terah, kind of ignores that, repairs things, builds more idols. And then the next night, Abraham breaks in, destroys everything, leaves the one idol standing. And the father comes in the next morning is like, somebody has a conspiracy against us. And Abraham says again, no, it's this God. He wants to be the dominant God. And Terah then says, no, Abraham, none of these things are real. There are no gods. I just make these things to sell. They're just wood and stone. They mean nothing and they have no power. And to which Abraham said, exactly, exactly. Because Abraham had begun to realize what we would probably call in our day and age uh, intelligent design. He began to look around and began to see there has to be something bigger and beyond what is currently being offered. There has to be an ultimate designer behind these things. And so the Jewish legend, the Midrash, describes how Abraham arrived at this monotheism. Uh, in Judaism, Abraham is kind of seen as the father of monotheism. How he arrived at this through the process of observation and deduction. So I want to read for you now from one of those stories. It's from what's known as Resplendence. Uh, I'm not aware of a copy of it in English, uh, but I will read to you a translation. Uh, but this is, again, uh, describing Abraham. It says, When Abraham saw the sun rise in the east, Abraham thought, Surely this is a great power. It must be the Creator. And that whole day Abraham prayed to the sun. In the evening, however, the sun set and the moon rose. And Abraham said, Surely this one rules over the sun that I've been praying to all day. Because the sun no longer shines. And so he prayed to the moon all night. But the next morning, he saw the sun rise and darkness pass. And he said, surely all of these must have a higher king and master who directs them in their courses. And then God saw that Abraham was seeking for him. And so God appeared to Abraham and spoke with him. And perhaps it was just so, or perhaps God's choice of Abraham is concealed in the mystery of his divine prerogative. We do know that although the world was filled with millions of men and women, God did choose one man. And by rabbinic reckoning, God chose Abraham before the creation of the world. Another collection of Midrash, these legends, is called the Yakut Shimoni. It's one of my personal favorites, uh, and there is no English translation of the Yakut Shimoni. Um, but it tells the parable about God's quest to find one single righteous man for whom he could justify having created the world. And as God looked into the future and as he scanned over all the generations of human beings to come, his eyes at last fell on Abraham. This is what the Yahut Shimoni says. There was a king who desired to build and lay foundations. He dug constantly deeper but found only a swamp. At last he dug and he found bedrock, literally Petra or Peter. And he said, on this spot, on this rock, on this Peter, I will build and lay my foundation. And so the Holy One, blessed be he, desired to create the world. But sitting and meditating upon the generations of Enoch and of the flood, he said, how shall I create the world 
seeing that those wicked men only will provoke me. But as soon as God perceived that there would arise one named Abraham, he said, Behold, I have found my rock, my Petra, my Peter, upon which to build and to lay the foundation of the world. And that day the Lord called Abraham rock. Did God really create the entire world only for the sake of Abraham? It seems to be an impossible notion, but in one sense, we as followers of Jesus of Nazareth know that this, in fact, is true. And this is where our understanding of Jesus, especially as outlined in the New Testament and especially in the writings of the Apostle Paul, find alignment with these rabbinic tellings of God creating the world for the sake of Abraham. Because in reality, it wasn't because of Abraham's personal righteousness or Abraham's moral character or that Abraham truly was not a sinner and stood out above all other humans. Rather, what we know from the Gospels and from the epistles is the world was created for the sake of Abraham, but more specifically, for the sake of Abraham's seed, the Messiah. The seed, because Paul will talk about the seed of Abraham or the descendant of Abraham, and he makes it clear he's using singular, not plural, referring to one particular descendant, one particular seed of Abraham, none other than the Messiah, and that the world was brought into being for the sake of Messiah. And so when the rabbis say that God looked into all the future generations and they saw the one righteous man, what they really saw, what God really saw, was the Messiah. And where does the Messiah come from? The Messiah comes from the line of Abraham. So throughout the Old Testament and throughout the Torah, as we've been talking about in the Son and the Scriptures series, there's that scarlet thread of redemption. Every portion, there's this thread weaving through that describes the Messiah, describes something about him and gets more and more detailed. And in this week's portion, Lech Lecha, we begin to see that that Messiah, that scarlet thread, comes through Abraham. And so Abraham is singled out because he is the one from whom Messiah descends. During the Talmudic age, the great academies in Babylon agreed that the world was created only on the merit of one righteous man. And of course, in typical rabbinic fashion, they argued over who that one righteous man was. Rav claimed that the world was created for the sake of David. Shmuel countered that the world was created for the sake of Moses. But Rabbi Yechanan contradicted both and said the world was created only for the sake of the Messiah. And Rabbi Yechonin's opinion prevailed. The world was created only for the sake of Messiah, Abraham's seed. Saul of Tarsus, or as many know him, the Apostle Paul, taught the same concept. He believed that all things were created only for the Messiah. And moreover, he taught that all things were created by the agency of the Messiah. And so in Colossians chapter 1, verse 16, Paul writes this, For by him, the Messiah, all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and 
for him. God chose Abram out of the sea of humanity 2,000 years in advance of the birth of Jesus. This Abram, who would later be called Abraham, is the forefather of the Messiah. And for that reason, Ben Avraham, son of Abraham, is one of the titles of the Messiah. Inasmuch as Messiah was contained within Abraham, he is the seed of Abraham. And this is the reason Abraham was chosen. Not because of his own personal righteousness, not because of his personal conviction of monotheism, not because of his great faith, but because he is none other than the father of Messiah. The world was made for the sake of Abraham because the world was made for the sake of Abraham's seed, the Messiah. And through the agency of the Messiah, the world was made. So when Abraham was born, last week's portion, it concluded kind of by introducing Abram, kind of foreshadowing it. Just as the first portion of the Torah ended with mentioning Noah, and then the second portion was all about Noah, the second portion kind of ends mentioning Abram so that the next, the third portion is all about Abram or Abraham. But it mentioned these words in Genesis 11, verse 26. Terah, that's Abraham's father, the, the idol maker, lived 70 years and became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. As the forerunner of Messiah, Abraham's life foreshadows many aspects of Messiah. Of particular interest to disciples of Jesus is one of those legendary Midrashic accounts of Abraham's birth. This is, to me, fascinating and highly significant, and it helps us maybe have a better understanding of why the Gospel of Matthew records the birth narrative of Jesus the way that it does. But I want to describe to you from the Midrash the birth of Abraham. Uh, and as I do, I think you'll recognize several details similar to our Messiah's birth. So the story begins that there is this pretentious star in the east, and astrologers begin to interpret it. And the astrologers interpret that this sign in the sky means that someone very important has been born. A wicked king gets wind of this from his wise men and from his astrologers. And so the wicked king feels threatened. This wicked king is named Nimrod. And King Nimrod becomes so threatened that he decides to massacre all the babies so that he can make sure that he kills this very important baby that has been born that might threaten him. In the night of Abraham's birth, the astrologers and the wise men of Nimrod come to the house of Terah because that is where the star led them. And they ate and they drank and they rejoiced with him that night. And when they left the house, they lifted up their eyes toward heaven to look at the stars and they saw one great star from the east and it ran athwart, it says, and swallowed up four stars at the four corners. The astrologers were astonished at the sight, but they clearly understood the matter and they knew what it meant. And they said to one another, This only betokens that the child that has come and been born unto Terah this night will grow and be fruitful. He will multiply and he will possess all the earth, he and his children forever. And he and his seed, 
his seed will slay great kings and inherit the land. And then they went to King Nimrod and told him the sight they had seen and their interpretation. And they added the advice that he pay value for the child to Terah and that he slay the baby. This is something that would have been known in Jesus' day. In the first century Galilee, the story of Abraham's birth that I just described to you, that was bedtime story material. That was synagogue school material. Jesus as a child, Mary and Joseph would have told him this story. The apostles would have heard this story as children. This is part of what they knew about Abraham. And so when the Gospel of Matthew has its birth narrative, it would have resonated with those Jewish readers of the first century at a completely different level than it does in a 21st century Westerner's ears. When reading the birth of Jesus, they would find themselves remarking that the apple doesn't fall far from the tree and that these things befell Abraham too. And in many ways, it's not just Abraham's birth story. Moses' birth story is about the birth of a baby boy that's miraculous because Moses' mother had been separated from the father and yet she becomes pregnant and he is this promised child and the astrologers predicted and that's why the babies are being massacred in Egypt is because Pharaoh is trying to snuff out this, this miracle boy that will be the redeemer of the Israelites and the Hebrew people. Uh, by having Matthew having his story parallel that, he's not just like copying it or ripping it off. Uh, he's wanting his audience to know these other birth stories of Abraham and Moses. He's wanting them to say, oh, well, then the birth of this child, this one too is a great one sent by God. It's what marks this child as one sent by God. And as, as it was with Abraham and as it was with Moses, so it will be with this child. So let's keep going in the text and, and look at how some of the significant promises that God makes to Abraham find their ultimate fulfillment in Jesus the Messiah. In uh, previous Torah classes, primarily like in Echoes of Eden or in the Sunday class in Mosaic, we've talked about the concept of how one fulfillment of a prophecy does not exhaust the prophecy. That is, a prophecy or a promise or a blessing always has some kind of immediate fulfillment. That way people know it's true and it's real and they can measure it and so forth. It has an immediate kind of in-your-face, pashat, basic fulfillment, but that doesn't exhaust it that it has deeper fulfillments and it can have multiple fulfillments and it can be especially on a much deeper spiritual level. So we're going to look at some promises God makes Abraham and rather than uh, focus in on how they were physically fulfilled and literally fulfilled in the eyes and in the, in the sight and in the ears and the hearing of the people, uh, how they ultimately find their fulfillment in our Messiah. Because again, the point of the Son and the Scriptures is to connect everything to Jesus. So this week's portion, Lech Lecha, it begins, Genesis 12, verse 1. The Lord said to Abram, go forth, Lech Lecha. God's call to Abraham, and the in, then he in, uh, ensues that call by giving a list of eight promises to Abram. And those eight promises have shaped the course of human history. 
The three great monotheistic religions of the world all look back to Genesis 12, verse 1 as their point of origin. So Genesis 12, 1 is an incredibly important juncture in the scriptures because literally in this day, billions of people Billions of people from multiple faiths, and not just the three great monotheistic faiths of Christianity and Judaism and Islam, but you also have uh, the Druze, you have the Yuzgidis, you have uh, countless others, uh, the Baha'i, uh, many others all find their origin in Genesis 12, verse 1. They will trace it back to that point Uh, there God's call to Abraham a singular call to a single individual has proven to be universal in scope it's easy to see that the promises God made to Abraham have indeed been literally fulfilled but their ultimate fulfillment is only in the Messiah in Galatians chapter 3 verse 16 the apostle Paul says quote The promises, what he means by that is the promises from Genesis 12 that we're about to outline. The promises were spoken to Abraham, and then Paul says, and to his seed. Singular, not plural, not descendants, plural, but to his seed, singular, meaning the Messiah. According to Paul, the promises were spoken then not only to Abraham, But these promises in Genesis were spoken to the Messiah. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, Paul says these words. For as many as are the promises of God in him, in the Messiah, they are yes. Therefore also through him, through Messiah, is our amen to the glory of God through us. In other words, the promises of God, including these eight promises God makes to Abraham, find their ultimate yes, their ultimate amen, and their ultimate fulfillment being filled full in Messiah. Messiah is the ultimate end of all of God's promises. All of God's promises are yes and amen in the Messiah. Messiah, the answer to the promises. In Romans chapter 15, Paul tells us that, quote, the Messiah has become a servant to the circumcision on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to the fathers. That's verse 8 of Romans 15. Again, the Messiah, Jesus, is the confirmation, the fulfillment, the yes, the amen to the promises given to our patriarchal fathers. Messiah came to Israel in order to fulfill the promises that God made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Therefore, the promises spoken to Abraham were also given to Messiah. Again, Messiah is the yes and the amen and the fulfillment of those promises. Through him, these promises are filled full. So what are these promises? They come in Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 through 7. I'm going to list them. The first promise made is God says to Abram, I will make you a great nation. I will make you a great nation. The second promise is I will bless you. 
The word bless in Hebrew has the connotation of increase. It's not just like blessing, meaning I wish good things upon you. When God blesses, it actually does something, and it's intimately connected with God increasing. So, for instance, um, it's very common in, in the Jewish world to bless God before you eat. And each type of food has a specific blessing. You don't bless your food uh, in Torah worldview. From a first century Galilean religious perspective, you don't bless food. You bless God. You bless God. God gives you the food. That's who you bless. But if I had an orange in my hand, I would say, Baruch Adonai Borei Blessed are you, Lord God, not bless this orange. Blessed are you, Lord God, King of the universe, who brings forth the fruit from the tree. And by saying that and by pronouncing that blessing over, what I'm wanting to do, the spiritual technology of the blessing, is to increase the latent energy in the orange to bring me nutrition, to fuel me for the day, to do what it's supposed to do, to give me enough vitamin C to ward off the cold, whatever it may be, I'm offering the blessing to God so that he would increase. So I will bless you. I will increase you. The third promise, I will make your name great. Uh, Many ways that's done, including reputation and so forth. The fourth promise, you shall be a blessing. Nice connection between two and four. We have kind of that quirky uh, little, little proverb we may say that we are blessed to be a blessing. So not only does Abraham receive blessing, but he's to be a blessing. And that's something for us to contemplate as well. If we have been blessed by God, part of why we are blessed is so that we then become a blessing. The blessed are blessings. And if you're not blessing, then you are either uh, perverting or not taking seriously how you have been blessed. And so Abraham says, you shall be a blessing. Then the fifth promise given to Abram in Genesis 12. I will bless those who bless you. I will bless those who bless you. Now think about that. Uh, This may help explain why so many followers of Jesus are adamant supporters of the nation of Israel. Right? I will bless those who bless you. Those who bless the, the children of Abraham, they are blessed. Number six, and the ones who curse you, I will curse. I like to point this out. In Hebrew, it's not the same word being used here for curse. They do that in English to kind of make it sound poetic as it flows with, I'll bless those that bless you and curse those who curse you. But it really says that those who will be cursed are those who are indifferent to Abraham and to Abraham's seed. Not just that those who curse Abraham or Abraham's people or who try to harm Abraham's people, but even those who are indifferent, have no interest in. It's a little bit harsher language. The seventh promise, blessing. In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And number eight, to your descendants, I will give this land, Ha'eretz, the land of Israel, the land of Canaan, the promised land, belongs to Abraham, to Isaac, as he passes it on to Isaac, to Jacob, 
Jacob passes it on to his 12 sons, um, that this land is theirs. So those are the eight promises that are given to Abraham. And they have fulfillment uh, on a literal level, a geographic level, a political level, and all of that. But we want to spend now a little bit of time of looking at how they have their final yes and amen, as Paul would say, their final fulfillment in the Messiah. So a great nation, number one. If we only reckoned the Jewish people, we would still have to concede that God has made Abraham a great nation. What other nation has survived against such terrible odds and made such great contributions to society and thrived through so many centuries? I mean, think about it. Do you know any Canaanites? Do you know any Hittites? Do you know any Gergeshites? Do you know any Jebusites? Do you know any ites that have always and historically come upon God's people? You never have heard of them since, have you? And yet you know of Israel and you know of the Jewish people. But it is not just the Jewish people who look to Abraham. The Arab world also calls Abraham their father, adding many millions to the ranks through the son Ishmael, who also was promised that he would have great nations come from him. But more than these, the followers of Jesus, the seed of Abraham, an innumerable host, have been joined into Abraham's nation by practicing the faith of Abraham. They have been joined to Abraham through their faith in Messiah. This is Paul's major point in Romans and in Galatians, that by grace and through faith in the God of Abraham, Gentiles have been grafted in to the promises and into the covenant of Abraham, that they are spiritual children of Abraham, and that just as much as the physical children, they too are heirs to the promises made to Abraham. Therefore, Messiah has become a great nation. And in the future, all nations will be one great kingdom under one great king, none other than King Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. The second promise, I will bless you. Abraham and the children of Abraham, both those naturally born and those grafted in by grace and through faith in Messiah, the seed of Abraham, are the blessed people. Through the agency of Messiah, God bestows grace and blessing upon Abraham's descendants. They are blessed with every spiritual blessing. This is why Paul offers blessing to God when he says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Messiah. As a son of Abraham, the Messiah himself carries the blessing of God bestowed on Abraham. Therefore, he is both the recipient of the blessing and the agent of the blessing. This can be compared to the priests that lifted their hands and blessed Israel with the priestly blessing. And as they did, they also blessed themselves, for they were part of Israel. I will make you, your name great, is the next promise. And without a doubt, God has magnified Abraham's name and made it great. But he has done so primarily through Abraham's most famous son, Jesus of Nazareth. Christianity has spread monotheism, the scriptures, and even the name of Abraham to the whole world. 
one of the great rabbis in history um, around 1100 A.D. He's known as Maimonides or the Rambam. Never became a believer, never became a follower of Jesus, but in his writings, he referred to Jesus as the greatest Jew to ever live. And he obviously caught a lot of flack from his fellow rabbis and his, his uh, congregants in his synagogue. How could he say Jesus is the greatest Jew ever? And Maimonides, when he defends that, says, what other Jew has had such an impact on the world? It is because, Maimonides says, it is because of Jesus that monotheism is the standard now. You know, it's, it's the, sta- it, you know, the idea of one true God that Maimonides says came through the ministry of Jesus. And then Maimonides says, look at all these Gentiles. Oh, look at all these Gentile Christians. Look at their Bible. What is their Bible made of? Its first five books is the Torah. And he said, what other Jew could get a Torah What other Jew could get the writings of the prophets in the homes of all of these Gentiles? That is why Jesus is the greatest of the Jews. And that is why Jesus, as Abraham's descendant, has made his name great. The Lord has kept this promise to Abraham through the Messiah, the seed of Abraham. He has made the name of Jesus from Nazareth very great indeed, so that as Paul would say in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 10, at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess Jesus is Messiah to the glory of God the Father. The next promise, you shall be a blessing. Abraham is a blessing in that it is his faith that has introduced the entire world to God. Messiah is a blessing in that the grace afforded through Messiah makes it possible for the world to be reconciled to the God of Abraham. I will bless those who bless you. Those who do kindness and goodness to the descendants of Abraham, they're under the blessing of God. Jesus himself taught this in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 25 and verse 40. Jesus said, to the extent that you do a kindness to one of the brothers of me, even the least of them, you've done it to me. The brothers of Jesus are the children of Abraham, and those who show them kindness are blessed and rewarded because it is reckoned as if their kindness was visited upon Jesus himself. Therefore, they are blessed, as Jesus says in Matthew 25, verse 34. Come, you who are blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And I will curse those who curse you, those who curse the descendants of Abraham, who are indifferent to the descendants of Abraham, find themselves on the other side of God. Again, Jesus speaks to this, Matthew 25, verse 40. To the extent that you do an unkindness to one of my brothers, even the least of them, you have done it to me. And again, the brothers of Jesus are the children of Abraham. And those who show them indifference or unkindness find themselves on the wrong side of God, as if they had visited that unkindness upon Jesus himself. In you, all families of the earth will be blessed All the families of the earth find blessing in Abraham and that with the faith of Abraham, all humanity finds God in salvation. Subsequent reiterations of this seventh promise specify that the families of the earth will be blessed in Abraham's seed, in Messiah, the seed of Abraham, 
Believers from the nations are grafted into Abraham's family. And so Paul says in Galatians 3, verse 29, If you belong to Messiah, then you are Abraham's descendants. You are heirs according to the promise. In Messiah, all families of the earth are blessed. And the eighth promise to your seed, I will give this land. The land of Israel belongs to the natural descendants of Israel. God gave it to them, and he will give it to them again. But more than that, he gives the land to the singular seed of Abraham, the Messiah. When Messiah returns, he will rule from the land of Israel. His throne will be set up in Jerusalem, and he will be king over all of Israel. And when Messiah finally rules over the land, then all of Abraham's seed will own the land, and the nations grafted into Israel as uh, the prophet Isaiah says, will stream to Zion. And therefore we see that all the promises given to Abraham find their ultimate fulfillment, their yes and amen in Messiah. Now comes kind of the portion that I like to do at the, the end of each week where we make it personal, where we take something from the Torah portion and really try to find application in our life because we're, we're operating under the axiom that when Moses wrote the Torah, he wrote it naturally in divisions. And when Ezra rebuilt the temple, Ezra and Nehemiah, when they rebuilt the temple, they reinstituted the public reading of the Torah in the ears of all the people. And they read them according to the 54 portions that we follow in the Son and the Scriptures. And that they're to be read on specific dates through the year. You don't read them randomly. They begin on a very specific day, right after the festival of Sukkot. You begin with Bereshit. That pattern was established, again, all the way back with Ezra uh, in, in the rebuilding uh, of the temple. And with that is the, the notion that we're to live in the times, that each week's Torah portion is directly applicable to our life today. And that's how we live in the times. And so I try to give you some, some insight into that in ways that as you read the portion through the rest of the week, you have things to think about or journal about or pray about or just, if nothing else, uh, a point to launch off from. Uh, and so I want to do that this evening with the portion Lech Lecha. So there is a story told of a man who was captured behind enemy lines during the war. To his horror, he was sentenced to death by firing squad. However, the captain gave the man another option. He told him, you can go to the firing squad tomorrow morning at 6 a.m. or you can choose to walk through this door right now. Feeling hopeful, the man asked, well, what's on the other side of the door? The captain answered, all I'm going to tell you is that there's something unknown. There is an unknown power behind that door. The man thought it over and the next morning when it came time to choose his fate, he selected the firing squad. After the shots rang out, the captain's secretary asked him, you've offered so many people the other option to go through the door. And every time they have chosen the firing squad. What is beyond that door? With a look of dismay on his face, the captain answered, freedom. But people would rather face a known death than journey into the unknown. 
Those words are so true. Having been a pastor for nearly a quarter of a century, I have seen this time and time again in the lives of people. That they would prefer a known death, or known chaos, or known dysfunction, or known abuse, or known horror, or known actions that they absolutely know without a shadow of a doubt are contrary to the will of God or what is good for them and their family, but they will choose what they know rather than go through the door of something they don't know. I've had individuals with black eyes and bloody noses say, at least I know what to expect when I go home. At least I know what the reaction will be. At least I know what is coming my way. At least I know. And they somehow find comfort in knowing. And they will not venture into what they do not know. And yet what they do not know is actually freedom. Freedom from the chaos, freedom from the dysfunction, freedom from the abuse. We often choose the known death instead of the unknown future. When God commands Abraham to leave his home and embark on a journey, Abraham is simply taught or told in Hebrew, Lech lecha me'atzecha. Go for yourself from your land. Now, that directive is quite strange when you think about it. Abraham is told where to leave from, but he is not told his destination. What kind of journey lacks a destination? Generally, the destination and not the starting point is the most important thing. It is when you type in Google Maps. What do you type in? You type in your destination, not where you're leaving from. Think about it. Imagine being invited to a wedding. But instead of being told where the wedding will take place, you're simply told where you're to leave from. Good luck getting to the wedding. The answer to this riddle lies within the words, Lake Lecha. While the phrase is often translated in your English Bibles as, Go forth, as I hinted at the very beginning, It literally means in the Hebrew, go to yourself. In other words, Abraham was given the destination. Abraham was commanded to embark on a journey toward himself, toward his true self, toward his ultimate self. In a genuine journey to the self, we don't know the physical destination. We don't know where it will take us. All we know is where we're leaving from, that is, where we are at right now. Only once we arrive will we retroactively see where the journey was taking us all along. Of course, we'll have goals and planned destinations and proposed directions, but anyone who has achieved anything of substance knows that the vision they once had is nothing like the actual journey they took. The goals create the process, but the actual journey transcends the limited goals that initially motivated the journey. That is why God didn't give Abraham a clear physical destination. He just said, go, go to yourself. So Abraham rents the U-Haul, drives it up the driveway, tells Sarai, his wife, load up the U-Haul, we're moving, we're leaving. She's like, Fine, where are we going? He says, I don't know. And she says, okay, which direction are we turning when we get to the end of the driveway? I don't know. 
Abraham doesn't know because his journey is not about the physical journey. It's about his journey to the self. And in a journey to the self, all that we know is the starting point. Reaching the destination requires a courageous journey into the unknown. You have to be willing to open the door. You don't know what you'll find. You don't know what challenges you'll face. You don't know what people will think. And you don't even know if you will succeed. That's why many people refuse to step outside of their comfort zone. That's why they refuse to embrace the challenge. That is why they refuse to overcome their fears. And that is why they, take the un- uh, they refuse to take the unpaved and uncharted path. Instead, they choose the known even if it's a known path to what will ultimately be their death, if not their emotional and spiritual death. Greatness, therefore, requires us to courageously journey into the unknown, to embark on the Lech Lecha journey to our true and ultimate selves. But the reality is that many people grow from the outside in. In 25 years of observing people in their spiritual life, most people, unfortunately, grow from the outside in. That is, they look around at their friends, they look around at society, they look around at the people uh, at their workplace, and then they shape themselves to fit that surrounding. The clothes they wear, the food they eat, the things they say, the things they talk about, all become nothing but a reflection of their external environment. They have grown from what's on the outside and have brought it into their inside. And in this model, a person is nothing but a slab of clay. And the goal of their life is to fit in as neatly as possible into the molds that others have created for them. But this is not the Torah path. This is not the Lech Lecha path. Each one of us is created with our own unique potential, waiting to be actualized. Our job in life is to discover who we truly are, to express our latent potential and our divine spark from the image which we were created. You see, growth really isn't about becoming great at all. Growth is about becoming you. The authentic you, the you for which you were created from the foundation of the earth. And learning who you are isn't really about discovery, it's about self-discovery. Paul tells us in Ephesians, you were already born as a masterpiece. Literally the Greek, a one of a kind. But you've been masked by confusion. Your job in this world is to pull back that masking and uncover your real self. To do so requires a lech lecha journey. So instead of becoming a mirror that reflects everything outside of you, you are to become a projector. We can build something majestic and beautiful within ourselves, and then we express that outward into the world. We let our light shine. We become a light to the nations. This is also the difference between thermometers and thermostats. A thermometer reflects its environment. The temperature outside determines its internal state. A thermostat, however, is unaffected by the external state of affairs. It first determines its desired reality within itself, and then it expresses it outside, building toward that goal in its external environment. 
true model of growth is where we first develop ourselves internally. We decide what we want the temperature to be, and then we make it that temperature. We express ourselves out into the world. We are to project, not reflect. Sometimes we must also be willing to walk alone on the right path instead of following the masses on the wrong path. And this brings me back to when I said we would talk about Abraham being called a Hebrew. Abraham is the very first person in the Bible, and really, as far as we can find in history, the very first person ever to be called an Ish-Ivri, a Hebrew man. Ivri, the Hebrew word for Hebrew is Ivrit, or Ivri. And again, Hebrew, Ivri, Ivrit, doesn't mean a nationality, doesn't mean a DNA sequence. It's not something that's going to come back with 23andMe or Ancestry.com. Ivrit means literally to cross over. To cross over. Abraham was called an Ish Ivri, a Hebrew man, because he walked on the other side of the river. <clears throat> In the text, he physically crossed over and walked over. But anytime you're reading in the Bible, places are never just places. And when you're crossing over, you're not just crossing over physically. It symbolizes and represents a physical crossing over, a spiritual crossing over. And so while all of humanity was walking on one path, Abraham crossed over. He evreted. He Hebrewed. And he chose a different path. He walked alone, choosing to live a life of truth rather than a life of social acceptance. And sometimes we can see most clearly when we have the time to distance ourselves from our current surroundings, to rethink, to redirect, and then return with newfound purpose and meaning. Many leaders throughout the Bible go through this process on their journey to their selves. Abraham completely removed himself from his culture. As the text says in Genesis 1, he's to go forth from his house, his father's land, everything that's familiar, everything that's comfortable. He's to go forth from that. He's to go away from the known and into the unknown. And there he becomes the father of the Hebrew people and the father of all people who believe in the one true God of the universe and his son, the Messiah. But Moses, Moses spent years alone in the desert, developing his clarity and understanding of life before returning to lead his people. King David grew up as an outcast, a mumser. Jesse doesn't even recognize him as his own son. When Samuel says, show me your sons, I'm choosing the next king. Samuel goes through all the ones Jesse brings forth, and Samuel says, none of these guys are it. Are these really all your sons? And then Jesse's like, well, I kind of got this little mumser, this little outcast out back. Uh, kind of keeping watch over my flock at night, he is the one appointed by King Samuel to be, or by Samuel to be the king. Esther, separated from the rest of Israel, alone in Xerxes' palace as his pageant prize of a bride, finds the courage to risk her life to save the Jewish people. Only taking a step back can lead us to having a giant step forward. This model of growth, however, it's only effective when undertaken within the framework and the guidance of the Torah. The only way to find your greatness is to see yourself within a greater self, namely, God our Father through His Son Jesus our Messiah, for this is the source of everything. The journey to yourself is also the journey to God, the root of all self. And so 
this week as you read Lech Lecha, as you absorb the energy, as the Holy Spirit works through these words, may you be inspired to follow in the footsteps of Father Abraham. Have the courage to embark on a Lech Lecha journey, your unique journey, and discover who you truly are and who you were truly meant to be. I give a, a couple of action points for you to think through this week to kind of help you live this out. Choose one area in your life where you have remained in your comfort zone and craft a balanced plan. And that may involve you speaking to confidants or uh, entering into praying time with people and individuals, journeying, journaling, whatever it may be. But where are you remaining in your comfort zone and craft a balanced plan on how you can open the door and step into the unknown. And something a little more easy to do is every morning this week, create three goals for the day that will help you express your true self instead of simply being a mirror to those around you. And these three goals each day, you don't have to think, oh man, these got to be like earth-shattering and world-changing. It doesn't have to be that at all. Just what are areas in your life where you are being a mirror instead of a projector? So it could be something as simple as this. You may actually want to part your hair in the middle, but every time you do, people say, your hair looks much better when you part it on the side. You should really part it on the side. And so you part it on the side, and every morning you hate it. Every morning you hate parting your hair on the side, but you're only doing it so people will shut up or so that people will think you look good that day. Well, if you want to part your hair down the middle, part your hair down the middle. You have to be you. Or if this is what you want to look like, or this is how you're going to present yourself, this is how you now want to teach, this is how you now want to carry on your duties and responsibilities at the office instead of just trying to mirror somebody else's program for you, then do it. Do it. Begin to find just small ways where you can exercise and express your true self, who you really are. And by starting small, you will then work the confidence up and even become more natural into doing it every day, including in the bigger things. So that is Lech Lecha for this week. Pardon for the re-recording of it if you attended in person and perhaps I said something on Monday evening that I did not say on Tuesday afternoon, but you know what? Maybe I said something on Tuesday afternoon that I didn't say on Monday evening. But let's uh, close with the blessing. Baruch Adonai noten hatara. Blessed are you, Lord God, who has given to us the gift that is the Torah. Shalom and Selah. Go in peace, and we will see you next week, Monday evening at 6.30 p.m. Hi, everyone. Thank you for engaging this teaching. You know, we at Emmanuel have as one of our goals to make our teachings available online to anyone everywhere at any time, whether that's through a podcast or our YouTube channel or an MP3 download. It is our gift to you, and we want you to use it however you see fit. Also, if you feel uh, motivated or desire to support future teachings, you can do so with the donate button at the bottom of our teaching page. That's found at immlutheran.org forward slash teaching. Again, thank you for participating in our teachings here and hope to see you or engage with you somehow, some way, somewhere. God bless.